So you might think I'm just going to read the paper to you this morning, right? Well, that's the way it looks, right? So I got the paper out and I might just be looking at some headlines that was in our paper today. So I might read something like killings of schoolboys shake El Salvador gang truce. So something like India and Pakistan signed packs. Pakistan taking risk for love, which talk about rights and so forth. I might turn the page and might be consumed with election 2012. I mean, can't get enough of the election, right? Election coverage, voting year. Might be looking at dangerous debts, the deficit, all types of, of, of things in the paper that, if we're not careful, can consume our lives. It doesn't take very much to be reminded of the era that we live in today. The trouble that we might see in the world. Just pick up the paper. Just read just a little bit of it. And you can see. Turn on the nightly news. 6.30. 6 o'clock. 7. Whatever time you, you watch the news. It doesn't take very long before we see the stretch that the depravity and that sin has on this world. It affects every facet of life. Sin affects every nook and cranny of this world. From the depravity of the mind, depravity of the spirit of man, to the sin effect on the very ground and creation itself. Sin has touched every aspect of the created order in which we live. Now one day God is going to make everything right. As Revelation 21.5 tells us, there's coming a time where He says that He will make all things new. Not only our relationship with God through Christ Jesus, but also the very ground to which we walk. The very governments to which we look. Everything will become subject to the Prince of Peace. Christ Himself. Today we're going to look at an aspect of troubling times. Troubling times. This is going to be a two-part sermon. Today is going to be more or less of, a, of an introduction. Jesus is going to introduce to His disciples. And one of the things we talked about in Sunday school this morning is when we're reading Jesus' discourse with His disciples, sometimes... We need to step back and just say, why? You know, why is Jesus teaching? What is Jesus trying to get a point uh, apart to impart to his disciples' life? What is he trying to tell them? And when we came to the conclusion, when we read the scripture, we see that Jesus is shaping his disciples to do that very thing. To be disciples, to go for it. And so today we're going to see another, uh, we're going to see another discourse on this. Now many have taken these verses that we're going to look at today as strictly futuristic. These are things to come. But I think that we would do a uh, we would do the scriptures injustice to say it was is strictly futuristic. It had to mean something to the apostles as well. 
What we can say is that these verses speak to us today on September 9th, 2012, just as they did before to the disciples. Before we jump into the reading, let's kind of think of where we've been so far in the book of, of Mark. Last time we were in the book of Mark, Jesus had sat down into, in the temple across from what we might call the offering plate. It was just the offering box where he, they put their tithes and their offerings in. Uh, this box with huge horns coming out and they would drop their money in there. And the Pharisees or the scribes came about and they threw their money in there. They wanted everybody to see what they gave. So it's like standing up and giving a, a crisp. If they had a thousand dollar bill, that's probably what they would have smacked together and put into place. So everybody could see it. And then you have the, the widow that came along with a whole day's wages. was one sixty-fourth of a denaro. I mean, she literally almost did not have two pennies to rub together. And so she puts all that she had into the play. And Jesus used this as an illustration to show that this widow gave more than the Pharisees and the scribes and all the religious leaders because she gave all that she had. And she gave it as she was worshiping God. So Jesus used that illustration to show that this is sacrificial giving and this is worship to God when we give sometimes when it hurts. When we see a need. We give when it hurts sometimes. And so Jesus was using this woman as an illustration uh, to that. And so after this point, Jesus, they're going to exit the temple, which is where we're going to pick out today, as our introductory into troubling times. This is going to be part one, kind of an introduction. And then next week we'll look at more of these uh, specifics as to what Jesus is actually going to teach his disciples and what we can apply to our life as well. And some of it will have to apply to just hardships we have in life. Some of it is going to be futuristic. Some of it's going to be things to come, the end, of, end, of, end time stuff. When we, when we look for Christ to return, some of it will be much like Revelation, which we see in the book, book of Revelation, what Jesus is, is going to teach. But it had to mean something to the apostles as well. It had to mean something to the disciples as well. So we're going to, we're going to look at those aspects, and I pray that you'll join, uh, join us next week as we worship God and look at part two to this. So this is more of an introduction uh, today. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask uh, that He will bless our time here today and just really open us up to His Word and open us up to getting really the background core to what we need to understand what Jesus is, what He's saying to us today. Just as He did to the disciples, He's saying the same things to us. So let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have... Uh, you have intervened in our life. You have brought us here by your divine, uh, your divine hand. I don't think we are brought here by chance. I think you have drawn us here by, by your Holy Spirit. We ask you, God, today that you will just use the word to, to, speak, to uh, speak to us today. Speak to our hearts and minds and bring us to a place of, of uh, deep appreciation and uh, a realization that you are all we need and all we need to do is serve you. We do thank you, God, that you have brought folks here today to hear from heaven and to worship together in one accord. We ask you, God, as we dismiss even today, that we will not be the same as we came in here. We will be different. We will be changed somehow. We will have a different outlook on life, a priority to serve you as these last days uh, approach. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever in your life uh, had something that you thought was that you really, really, really needed and then, and then later on down the road you found out that you really quite didn't need it all that well? A false hope even in something 
you relied in something other than God and you found out later on that it was a false hope. One of the things I want us to see this morning is that Jesus tore down false hopes. He tore these false hopes away. He stripped down the false hopes as He does today. He tears down those things that we don't need in our lives. Sometimes we might ask God, Lord, why didn't you give me, why didn't you give me you know, what I needed? And you might have thought that's what you needed, but God really knew, hey, you didn't need that. It's just going to destroy your life. And so looking back in retrospect, we thank God. God, thank you for not giving me what I asked for, what I thought I needed and what I really didn't. I don't know if that makes much, much sense and it didn't correlate too well, but hey, sometimes what we think we need, we really don't need. So Jesus tears down false hopes. This is found in the first two verses of Mark 13, chapter 1, I mean, Mark 13, verse 1, and verse 2 says this, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? They, they will not be left here, one stone upon another. That will not be thrown down. So as Jesus had just illustrated the widow in the temple. Now he exits the temple. The next stop in Jesus' travel so to speak. Is that he is on his way to Calvary. From this point on Jesus becomes closer and closer. To the atoning work that he is to do. One step closer to Calvary. One step closer to his passion. We talked about Christ's passion this morning. That Christ's passion was that He embraced the cross. We talked about the passion of the Christ. That the movie, the scene in the movie where Jesus embraces the cross is probably the best scene in the whole movie. He embraces what He has been called by the Father and sent by the Father uh, to do. Now the temple in Jesus' time pales in comparison to what it used to be when Solomon first built it. And way back on the, in, in, in Israel's history, Solomon's temple was a magnificent structural uh, entity that they could look at and see, hey, God used to dwell here at one time. The Spirit of God dwelt on the Holy of Holies. This was a magnificent place. Solomon's temple was a sight to behold. Mighty, it was mighty. So now they come to the time where uh, the temple had been destroyed and Herod the Great had rebuilt uh, much of the temple under his rule. So it wasn't quite the same, but it still had a, mag a, certain, a certain glimmer to it, a magnificence to it. Not, not like the temple of the past, uh, but they still, in Jewish history and heritage, they held the temple very high. It was their centerpiece. Much like to say that their church uh, was their identity, so to speak. God should have been their identity. But see, they had identity in the temple. Uh, Josephus, an early Jewish historian, wrote this about the temple. He said this, So Herod took away the old foundation and laid others, and erected the temple upon them, being in length about a hundred cubits, and just say in height twenty additional cubits, which 
uh, the 20 were upon the sinking of their foundation. Now, Josephus, this historian, also writes this. He says, Now the temple was built of stones that were white, they were strong, and each of their length was, say, about 25 cubits, and their height was 8, and their breadth was about 12. So somewhere, if we were to calculate it today, somewhere around the neighborhood of, let's say, 37 feet long by 12 feet high by 18 feet deep. You might have seen some of this illustrated at the well and wall. You might see many of the Orthodox Jew praying uh, to, or, and putting their prayers in towards the willing wall. Some of these stones that were not to be uh, the same way stacked on top of another is found in that wall. Something we might look at today, be able to see on the evening news. But anyway, there was a magnificence in the temple that, the, that many of the Jews were proud of. Many of them were proud of this. That was the central place of identity for them. Where they were supposed to have showed their obedience to God by bringing their sacrifices. It was not to, just to be an, an open show of obedience. It was to be a heartfelt obedience as they brought their sacrifice to the high priest. And, he was, and they were to sacrifice there for their sins. And he, the disciples walked out and they drew the attention of Jesus saying, look, look at these stones. Look at the magnificence of them, the beauty, they might say. They were struck with wonder at this superb edifice that they called their temple. And these immense stones. Now, could it be that the apostles, or what we might say here, the disciples, could it be that they had more pride in their heritage? than they did for God. And if we're not careful, we'll wind up testifying and witnessing church to people instead of Christ. It's very important that we invite people to church, yes. But so much more important to make sure we introduce them to why we come to church, to Christ. It's not about the, the stones. It's not about the brick. Those things are important. Yes, God gave us a great gift to be able to come into a house and worship together. But we need to express why we come to worship together. It's about Christ. And so as Jesus, what, how is Jesus going to tear down? How is He going to tear down this false hope? What is He going to say? We're going to look at that. Jesus wants to move them away from the comfortable setting in which they live. Now, by today's standards, they wouldn't have not been as comfortable, say, as, as we are. Life was in no way a breeze. They were under the oppression of Rome. So it would have been in no way uh, a breeze for them in their life. They would have had hard times, just like you and I. Now, what instead they had to look forward to was a lifetime of persecution. Actually, they would have, they would, most of them, except for John, would, would die a martyr's death. They would die for the sake of Christ. They would be scattered for the sake of Christ, taking the gospel out to the nations for the sake of Christ. Their life would never be the same. Getting their focus away from being comfortable to Jesus now formulating in them a, a lifestyle of discipleship. And moving out. Don't be so comfortable where we are. Maybe God wants to shake us a little bit to make us a little uncomfortable. So we might go out into the streets where we are. Hey, we're uncomfortable talking with strangers sometimes. 
We're not comfortable telling people about our faith sometimes. Maybe, maybe God wants us to get us out of that comfortable zone, move us out of our comfort zone a little bit. He was setting them up for things to come. Don't put your hope in this temple. You put your hope in God. Now, just as the disciples here, we see in verse 2, they had, they had called Jesus' attention to the great buildings. Jesus done likewise. He called His attention not to the stones, not to the all and the wander of the big stones, but He says to them, these very stones which you wander and, and are in awestruck about are going to be shaped out of their very place. Now, we may take this as a very literal thing, some say it's, it's very literal that even today there's not one of those stones that's set on top of another. Or we might take this somewhat of, of saying in a roundabout way that things will never be the same again. Things will never be the same again for Israel. He is, I think, alluding to a time in Jewish history where the Jews revolted against Rome. They rose up in 66 AD against, against Rome itself. And they were really undermatched. But what happened was Rome just came and destroyed the temple. Dispersed the Jew. And from 70 AD, their world was never the same again. And I think this is what Jesus is alluding to in, in, his, in history. Jewish history. Where Rome will destroy the temple. So he's telling him. He's getting their mind ready. He's getting them ready. Hey, don't, don't be so... Uh, enamored with the building itself. Now every Jew at this time, they had some type of religious mindset. Even the high ruler, even the, the scribes and, the, and these, uh, the high priests, they had a religious mindset of some sort. And they were rocked and they were shocked by the destruction of, of the temple. And they said, you know, surely we're God's people. God will not destroy us. That's part of the false teaching. That's part of the be not be deceived. Do not be deceived that Jesus is going to tell them about. Don't be so deceived to think that God will not judge you just because you have Jewish blood. Don't think that. Don't think that we're so high and mighty because we are, hey, we're Christ followers and God will not chasten us. That if we sin, God will not demand that we, we make that right with Him. He just will not let sin go unanswered. Don't think that just because we call ourselves a Christ follower that God will not chasten us when we go astray. That God will not pull that shepherd's hook and pull us back in. Make us walk right. Pull us back in right. And when we obey, it seems sometimes that old shepherd's hook gets, gets a little bit tighter around us. As we try to venture off the road. Don't think that we're just so high and mighty because we name the label of, of Christ among us that God will not somehow... Bring us back into His fold. He's a loving shepherd. It's not anything that is, a, that is hateful. It's not overbearing. It's not tyrannical. It's because He loves us. And He pulls us back into the fold. It's like a father specking their child to do so because they love them and want to see them walk a correct path. But they were so enamored with their Jewish history and their heritage that were losing out the, the idea that it is obedience to God and He seeks obedience rather than He does just the mere sacrifice and the mere uh, object of the temple itself. They had a false hope in this building and in the temple and even sometimes in a way of life. And Jesus was forming a lifestyle of discipleship. 
teaching his disciples to carry on, and like we looked at this morning in Sunday school, to go. To go to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, some might look to the right, some might look to the left, but what we really need to do is we need to look right down the center and see Christ. All these other things that God has in our life, the church, the building, is, is, it can be very important. It's helpful for us. And over here we might see a man that we really like to hear preach. We might hear a singer that we really like to hear sing. But in the reality, we need to cut down the middle and be, our eyes need to be focused on Jesus Christ. Are these things helpful? Yes. In reality, we don't put our hopes because man can fail you. Preachers can say things sometimes that make you angry. Singers can sing sometimes that aren't really theological. We need to look down the center and see Christ in all of it and keep our eyes on Him. It makes me think of this past year with a gentleman by the name of Harold Camping. You may have heard that name in the news. Now, Harold Camping is known for predicting the rapture of Jesus. If you did not know, Harold Camping at one time in 1994 predicted the coming of Jesus, predicted His rapture. And of course that didn't happen, so he, he recoiled and said, uh, my calculations were wrong. I was wrong about it. It's not that the Bible is wrong, my interpretation of it was wrong. Yeah, it really was, because the Bible says that no man knows. No man knows the day. No, no man knows when Christ will return. So that was number one, that was his, that was his number one fault. So this past year, in May, I think it was May 21st, the rapture was supposed to happen. And I actually had the, I guess if you could call it the privilege of talking uh, to one of Harold Camping's disciples. I guess you can call him a disciple. And I talked with him for a while. And I said, well, what's going to happen if you're wrong? What's going to happen if, you're, if, Harold Camp, if his calculations are wrong? And with all sincerity in his voice, he said, I know it won't. I, I know that this will happen. I am not wrong. This will happen 100%. He was emphatically saying that Jesus was going to come back and rapture his church May 21st, 2011. And here's the kicker. If you didn't believe that Jesus was coming back that day, then you were lost. So what has become their gospel? The rapture being predicted has taken the place of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is what they began preaching. The rapture instead of Jesus. And I call this also a false hope. We get our eyes off of the centrality of the scripts of the scripture and off of Christ. All things go haywire. All things get out of mess. So Jesus is going to, this is what he's going to do. He's going to redirect their hope. He redirects our hope as well. We read the scripture. He's going to redirect the apostles' hope. And this false hope and get it centered back on, back on Christ. Now hope in mankind is, I mean it can really, we can be just downright devastated sometimes. Somebody does us wrong. I've met, I've met people, I've met person after person. I've talked with, with all types of people that tell me, they don't go to church anymore because they were, they were hurt by somebody. Putting our hope in man sometimes can mean that we can expect to be hurt. You can expect it. We are perfect people. 
Christ is going to say, do not put your hope in this building. Don't put your feet up. Don't get too comfortable. We don't need this church. We don't need this building to hold and to maintain our identity with Christ. If for some reason a hurricane was to come and blow down every church in Lewisburg, we don't need the brick, the mortar. We don't need the nail, the screw. We don't need the pew, the pulpit to make our identity known. Our identity isn't in the building, isn't with Christ. So maybe this is one of the things that Jesus was conveying to His disciples. It isn't in the temple that is built with stone. It is in the cornerstone and He is Christ. Number two, Jesus sets up the scenes to come. And this is going to kind of project us into next week. So I hope and pray that you'll join us again as we look at part two of Troubling Times and the specifics Wars and rumors of war and earthquake and diverse places and their brother will rise up against brothers. And we're going to look at how that affected the disciples and the apostles right then and there. And we're going to look at how it affects us today. And we're going to look at the aspect of revelation. What type of revelation is this? Is this a, a, a what you would say that all fulfilled from 70 AD? Or is it something that we might call a telescopic view? Progressive is for the disciples and they look down and it affects the future as well. So it's kind of a dual revelation. We're going to look at that next week in more detail. But Jesus sets up the scenes to come. He's kind of setting the stage. And we'll have a little bit more time, Lord willing, next week to get in those specifics and to really um, see what Jesus is saying. Verse 3, chapter 13 says this. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? When will be the signs when all of these things are to be accomplished? Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Now I do want to pick up on this verse and what he says, See that no one leads you astray because... They are not promised that they will even be a a, a vibrant tomorrow. They might be dead tomorrow. Don't listen to these false teachers that say just because you are sons of Abraham, you you will continue on. Of course, God is going to have a remnant, yes. He's going to have a people, yes. But don't think just because you are Uh, a a Hebrew, a son of Abraham, that you will not be judged and Israel will not be judged as well. In verse 3, this takes place on the Mount of Olives. So they come out of the temple and right on the east, they they would have looked as they had sat on the Mount of Olives right out of the temple and he would have been able to sit right there and to look onto the temple itself as they walked out. And some think that this is this, this is Peter that actually asked this question. Of course, the Scripture doesn't tell us, so we'll just say, as the Scripture tells us, that it was one of his disciples. That's really all we need. Uh, to that ask them a question. You know, when, when this temple is going to be destroyed and all these stones are going to be moved out of its place, what is going to happen? What is going to be a sign? So Jesus sat down just like a rabbi would do. Many teachers of, of, that, of that day, a, a Jewish Hebrew uh, rabbi, would have, uh, would have sat down and reclined. And, and he sat down to teach. And master, uh, master, what was to come? 
Jesus was a master teacher. Sometimes the word used uh, for Jesus as teacher uh, signifies that he was a master teacher. He was, a, he, he was almost, I mean, well, he was. He exceeded the scribes, but they would have said to him that he was a, like a master teacher. Of course he was. He was the Logos, the, the Word in flesh. He, he was God enveloped in flesh. Of course he's going to speak with authority. Verse 4 tells us this. It says, this is the question. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Just like today, there's this question is pervasive in our culture. And as we were going through Revelation, when we went through the book of Revelation, we, we made this note, and it was very important to understand, that there's no other doctrine in all of the Scripture, no other teaching that grabs so much attention as does the last things. The last days. The end of times. You can go into an airport. Uh, you can go to uh, Walmart. And at one time used to be able to just walk into the book section. And you could look over and you could see one of the best sellers from Tim LaHaye. Or Left Behind series. And, and it was even, I mean, sold millions of copies. Best sellers list. It even gets the world thinking about end time things. It even, begin, it even makes the world begin to wonder what's to come. What's, what's going to happen? And see, all those, those books might have served a purpose. They weren't actually uh, to... Uh, I mean, I guess they were what they were. You know, maybe a piece of, of fiction based on the Scripture loosely. But here's the thing. Even in those books, they got... Even the world, even those that we might call outside of the church, even un, unchurched folk, to think about what's to come. So God even used that. And it's a good question. When will Jesus return? When will the world end? What's going to happen at the end of time? You know, a lot of, a lot of people have these questions. What's going, to, what's going to happen in December 2012? Is that, is that theological? The Mayan calendar. You know, all these things. Y2K. When that, back, in, back in the turn of, of the century. When, when 1999. And people are waiting for everything to shut down, the computers to shut down. This is the end of the world, they said. We're, we're coming in the, the year 2000. People's minds were set on end time things. No other doctrine in, in all of Scripture makes people ponder the things of God as what we call the doctrine of last things. People all over are wondering what's to come. Now Christ, He's going to answer this to some degree. And this is a good question. And something that was a Christ follower, I think we need to be asking. When the Lord says, or when the Lord, or why Lord, or when to expect these things Lord, when will these things come to pass? Now next week when... We look at this, Lord willing, we're going to look at you in a little bit more detail. We're going to look at some of the specifics. A little bit of the specifics as to what's to come. What it meant for the apostles. Genuine questions merit genuine answers. Now Jesus said, don't be foolish. You didn't see Jesus saying that. He didn't say, don't ask dumb questions. Because there, there's times when Jesus says, you lack faith. There's times in the Scripture where Jesus uh, uh, says to His disciples, you lack faith. 
you know, almost in a way saying, you're, you're slow of wit. But this, this time, Jesus answers them with a genuine, a genuine answer because they ask genuinely the Lord Jesus this question. And I think as us Christ followers, we should be asking some of the same questions. You know, a person asked me the other day, he said, Hey man, are you uh, post, uh, pre-trib, post-trib, uh, trib uh, tribulation? And I said, well, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess what you would call pan-trib. And I've heard that many times. A person said, well, it'll all pan out in the end. Just look for Christ's return. And I think there is something about looking at the aspect of Jesus returning. There are certain signs in the air? Sure. Will there be certain signs? Yes. But there seems to be a mystery about the coming of Christ because it gets our mind focused on His coming. It gets us looking for His return. There is a mystery about it. And I think we should be asking these genuine and yet sometimes tough questions. If you want to find a doctrine in the Scripture that has more questions than any other one, you talk about the end time events. It has more questions and more theories than any other biblical topic that you might come to find. But I think what we're going to do is just look at specifics and see what Jesus said to them. Now there is a Danish philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. You might have heard the phrase, a leap of faith. He was one that actually coined the phrase, a leap of faith. But a side note to that, he tells of a parable of a theater where a variety show is, is happening. And, 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 and this variety show is going on. And each show is more fantastic than the last. And is applauded by the, by the audience. They love it. Suddenly, the manager comes forward. And he apologizes for the interruptions in between. But the theater is on fire. And he begs his patrons to leave. Get out! Leave! There's fire! But, but do so in an orderly fashion. Funny how that works. The audience thinks that this is the most amusing turn of events. It's almost like you're watching a 3D movie and you get punched in the face or something. Wow, that's some awesome 3D. The theater was really on fire. The audience thinks it's amusing and cheers, thunderous cheers. You know, wow, a fire. The manager again implores them to leave the burning building and he is again applauded vigorously because they think it's part of the act. And at last he can do no more. The fire raced through the whole building and the fun-loving fans in there and all those that applauded that were in it. And also Kierkegaard says this, and I quote, Will our age, I, uh, I think, I sometimes think, go down in fiery destruction to the applause of a crowded house of cheering spectators. Of cheering spectators. So it's a good question to ask, when will the Lord return? Sometimes our out-of-focusness can get us uh, outside of reality sometimes. What does the Bible say? You know, will we be uh, looking at the details of the fire, the fire burning around us and get our eyes off of what is really to be on the focus? And with, all, with saying all of this, I think it is most important that we just see what Jesus has to say about it first. We get enamored with the building over here. We get enamored with something else. We find out what Jesus says about it and, and build our foundation on that. So it isn't all this smoke and dance about uh, who the Antichrist is. It isn't all this smoke and dance, you know, you know this, this show about 
uh, who's coming on the world scene. It isn't all this. The importance is in Christ and what He teaches and obedience to Him. So we don't go down like a, an audience in, in applause and the fire is burning around us. We have our focus and our focus is on Christ. We will not be deceived by all the spectacular array of what the world has to offer about end time things. About last things. You know, I, I began to wonder one time, this person was, you know, I, I love them in the Lord and they were talking about speaking in tongues and, and falling out in the Spirit and all this. You know, and as Baptists, you know, they're probably not so prominent in the church. But I began to think, why do we have to add this spectacular dimension to God and last things when He's already spectacular enough? <coughs> sensational enough. We don't have to make it some sensationalism. God is already sensational enough if we would just look at what is said in the Scripture. We don't need all the, the song and dance. We need to cut right to what Jesus said. So we're going to look at some of that next week. And we're going to ask the bigger question of this. Is, it, is, is who we look at? We look at Christ. Is your trust in Jesus and not the building? Do we witness Christ and not the church? The main thing for us today is to know the hour is coming, but more importantly, to know the one who is, who is coming and who is returning. And I will say to you, not only that, but to be ready for His return. His imminent return. You know, I'm going to finish on this. I had a person say, well, Jesus, you guys have been saying that Jesus is going to recur, uh, that, that Jesus, you've been looking for Him for 2,000 years. You've been looking for Jesus to return for 2,000 years. I asked, well, where, where did you ever get the idea that, his, that, that Jesus was going to come in His day? The disciples seemed to think that Jesus was going to somehow come in His day, in, in their day. But we also have to understand this, that, that time with God is not as our time is. The mind of God is not like our mind. Time is not like His time. The Scripture tells us that one day with God is like a thousand years. So it is as if time is of no effect with God. So we're thinking in, in linear years where God is just a moment in time and it could just be just like tomorrow or a second for God. One of the aspects we're going to look at next week is some more of the specifics of these troubling times. And what I say to you is today as a Christ follower, this, this earth, this place is not our home. We're just passing through, as the old song says. Don't get too comfortable, Jesus would say to us today. Make sure we know the one returning. Let's pray.